Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2018. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, you may call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. So all the congregation said, Amen. Let us worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. And again he saith, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Great God of heaven, we glorify you as the one who spoke all things into existence, and we rejoice before you as part of that spoken world. Together with the moon, sun, and stars, together with the oceans and forests, Together with the lakes, brooks, and rivers, we have assembled to declare your great glory. We praise you for all your wisdom, including the wisdom that placed us in a position to adore you in a way that astonishes the principalities and powers. You are the God who works through the weak and insignificant, and we call upon you to do the same thing again now. And so, gracious Father, we worship you now through Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. And amen. You have been exhorted as a people numerous times to remember who you are in the story you are in. You have been asked to think about what kind of character you are. If the day you were having is a movie, what character would you be in that movie? And would it be a sympathetic character or not? But in order to do this, you have to read the story that is unfolding around you. As you do this, you need to know that the temptation to regard yourself as the protagonist is a temptation that will be enormously compelling, regardless of how you've been behaving. Everybody does this, whether they are good or evil, regenerate or unregenerate, obviously sympathetic, or just as obviously not. Everybody looks out at the surrounding story through his own eyeballs and interprets it according to the self-serving paradigm that each one of us carries around with us. Hitler and Nietzsche did this, as did the Apostle Paul and Augustine. How can we tell what we are doing? What is the mark of wisdom? It is not that you are the hero of your story. That is like declaring yourself the protagonist because you have ten toes. Remember that human beings are intricate computing machines deviously hijacked by some diabolical hacker codes that run self-deception programs all the time. In this world, the real protagonists, enabled by the Holy Spirit, recognize the very real possibility that they are the problem character in the sketch. They know that apart from God's grace, they would in fact be that. They do not spend a lot of emotional energy trying to get other characters to see themselves rightly. And the real protagonists read the scriptures faithfully and regularly in order to see the kind of script that God wants us to use. God did not tell us to to get up there on the stage and ad lib it. We are to learn our lines from the inside out, and we are to say them. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Father God, we bow before you now. We confess to you the great fault we have of constantly blaming others. When we rely on our own righteousness, the only thing we can do to approximate righteousness at all is by concentrating on how unrighteous everyone else is. We confess this as a national fault, a generational fault. Please forgive us. 
Father, we know that if we in the church regard iniquity in our own hearts or, or in our own lives, this prayer will be ineffectual. And so, most high God, we who are in the church have tended to minimize the message of sheer grace, and so we've gone about to establish our own righteousness just as others do. Please forgive us for this grievous fault. We confess our own individual sins to you now and Selah. We do this in the good and great name of Jesus, and amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. God is the God of peace, and he is the God who declares peace to the one who is far away from him. You have been estranged from him before, but now, because you've confessed honestly and without guile, I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. The text this morning is Psalm 96. These are the words of God. O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the, that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that, is there, all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice. Before the Lord, for he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. O God, our God, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, we pray. Open our hands so that we can take away from this place what you have so kindly given to us in your word, through your word. And we ask for this in Jesus' name, and amen. We see in this psalm, obviously, that God is worthy of all praise and honor. We know this through special revelation, as we see here in Psalm 96, God's special word, God's uh, authoritative declaration in the scriptures tells us that God is worthy of all praise and honor, but we also learn the same thing from the created order itself, and we know this because the scriptures tell us that we learn the same thing from the created order itself. Scripture knows this and tells us the created order knows the same thing and tells us. God is speaking in both places because God is silent nowhere. The creation is an essential part of the choir. The oceans are singing bass, and the stars have the high soprano descant. We, the redeemed of all mankind, occupy a middle position, and we should do so as ones eager and willing to acquit ourselves well in that task. We should sing in a manner that is worthy of all our created companions, whether it's in the oceans below or in the heavens 
above. Now let's break this uh, text down, go through it verse by verse, and then I want to situate this psalm for you. A general invitation is given to sing unto the Lord. It is a universal invitation. This is not just limited to Israel. Uh, Israel is backgrounded in this psalm. This is an invitation to all the earth. Sing to the Lord, all the earth, verse 1. Sing to the Lord, and this should be extended through, throughout all time. We are to sing to the Lord day to day. So it's not just everywhere, it is every time, verse 2. So all, every place, verse 1, every time, verse 2. All the heathen should hear about it, verse 3. It's not just Israel, not just the Jews. All the heathen should hear about this, verse 3. The reason for it is the greatness of our God, verse 4. The gods of the nations are idols, that is to say, nothings. We'll get to that later. But God created the heavens. God created everything. God created heaven and earth. God created all that is. And the idols are vapors. The idols are nothings, verse 5. Honor and majesty are in front of him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary, verse 6. And so it's appropriate for us to give glory and strength to the Lord, verse 7. Our God deserves glory, so bring him an offering, it says, verse 8. One of the ways we glorify God is through tithes and offerings. We glorify God when we give. Worship the Lord, the psalmist says, in the beauty of holiness, verse 9. And notice that this adoration of beauty goes together with fear. So we're not talking about a craven fear. John tells us in his epistle that fear has to do with punishment. Perfect love casts out fear. And so it's not that kind of crawling, craven fear. But there's a certain adoration, a certain adoration of beauty that goes together with fear. Notice in Philippians that it says that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Say among the heathen that God is in charge, verse 10. Tell the, tell the Gentiles this. Tell all the nations that God rules. Our God reigns. The world is fixed in place because God put it there. Also verse 10. In other words, we shouldn't assume the eternity of matter or the stability of matter or the stability of the way things are because there's anything inherently stable in contingent created stuff. It is stable because God is being gracious to us. The world stays put because God put, it where he pl God put it where he placed it. So, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the oceans roar, verse 11. The meadows and the trees join in, verse 12. The judgment of God is coming, and we should never forget that the judgment of God coming to this sorry planet is good news, verse 13. The judgment of God is a good thing. And this is what you declare to the Gentile nations. The judgment of God coming is a blessed thing. It's a good thing. It's a day of relief. It's a day of cleansing. It's not, it's not a, a day characterized fundamentally by terror. It is terror for those who are outside of Christ, but it is not a day of terror. It's going to be the, it's going to be the best day that this world has ever seen. So that's the uh, overview of the psalm. I want to talk a little bit about, it, about the occasion for this psalm. Where, uh, where does it come from? It, we don't have an inscription at the top of the psalm. It doesn't say of David, or it doesn't tell us where uh, it comes from. But the thing that's interesting 
uh, is that we have this psalm recorded elsewhere in Scripture. So from the content of the psalm, what it's talking about, and from what we can ascertain about how it was used elsewhere in the Bible, we can see that this is a psalm of mission, particularly particularly of the coming Gentile world mission, and it is a psalm of the coming millennial glory. So this is a psalm for Gentiles, it's a psalm of mission, and it's a psalm of the coming millennial glory in the time of the new covenant. In the psalm itself, within the psalm itself, the Gentiles are repeatedly invited to join in, but we learn even more about this from the place where this psalm, uh, the place that this psalm occupied in the history of Israel. A form of this psalm was incorporated into the psalm of dedication for the tabernacle of David. If you look at 1 Chronicles 16, 23 through 33, you can see that this psalm is the second half of an extended psalm. So there's an extended psalm that was offered up at the dedication of the tabernacle of David, and this psalm, Psalm 96, is the second half of that psalm. But why is that significant? What what was the tabernacle of David? What did the tabernacle of David mean? When the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, you remember at uh, uh, at the uh, from Shiloh when they destroyed Shiloh, that Ark became a scourge to them. So they captured they captured the Ark of the Covenant. They took the Ark of the Covenant away. They took it back to ho- back back home, and the Ark of the Covenant became a scourge to them. We see that in 1 Samuel 5, 3. Eventually, because it was, enu- it was enough of a scourge to them, their god Dagon fell down, uh, head broke, hands broke. Eventually, they sent the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. And once it got back to Israel, because God is not exactly predictable, uh, it became a scourge to the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh in 1 Samuel 6, 19. So the Philistines were... Uh, harassed because of the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. They sent it back to Israel. A bunch of the Israelites peaked in the Ark of the Covenant and, and thousands of them died. The Ark was eventually settled in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Obed-Edom the Gittite, likely a Gentile. Consider his name, Obed-Edom, right? Obed-Edom, and he's a Gittite. He's not an Israelite. So the Lord, and then because God, again, is not predictable. In 2 Samuel 6, 10 and 11, we see that God prospered the house of Obed-Edom greatly. So it went to the Gentiles. It was a scourge to them. Went back to Israel. It was a scourge to them. It wound up in the house of Obed-Edom, and God blessed Obed-Edom's socks off. So God blessed his house greatly. When David finally brings the ark back to Jerusalem, you remember the first attempt, uh, rattled David because God uh, uh, chastised them for how they brought it back. They brought it back on a cart the way the Philistines had transported it instead of the way the law of God required, carried by Levites. So when the ark finally makes it back to Jerusalem, David houses it on Mount Zion in a tabernacle that's dedicated to music. Okay, so this is important. Shiloh is where the temple, the tabernacle had been. It was, dis- it was destroyed. And David brings it back, sets up a tabernacle for, for musical offering on Mount Zion. And the sacrifices there were sacrifices of praise. Now, there were sacrifices offered at the dedication of the tabernacle of 
David, but it wasn't a place of, of uh, blood sacrifice. It was dedicated by means of a blood sacrifice, but the sacrifices that were offered in the tabernacle of David, David being a great musician, were, um, were sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of music. And Obed-Edom comes with it. Obed-Edom is a porter in the tabernacle of David. Later, when the temple is built on Mount Moriah, when Solomon builds the temple on Mount Moriah, which incidentally is where Abraham surrendered Isaac, so Abraham traveled for three days to get to the region of Moriah, and God stops him at the last minute. He was offering up Isaac, his only son, his beloved son, in the place where Jesus was going to be offered up centuries later on Mount Moriah. That's where the temple was built. Mount Zion is where the tabernacle of David is, this musical, uh, this, this, this musical uh, tabernacle. So the tabernacle of David, after the temple was built, the tabernacle of David was disassembled and taken over to the temple. All right, so it was a sacrifice of praise. And prior to this time, in the Levitical system, music did not occupy a, uh, a place in the sacrificial system. David set up the tabernacle of David, and it was for music. And then music is brought into the temple on Mount Moriah. So the center of worship, this is interesting, the center of worship is overwhelmingly identified in Scripture with the name Zion, not Moriah. So uh, we're marching to Zion, we're uh, uh, shadow Zion, daughters of Zion. Zion is the, is the name that sticks to the, the worship of God, and Moriah isn't. Sent, and, and, and this is where it really gets interesting. Centuries later, the prophet Amos declares that the tabernacle of David would be rebuilt. That's in Amos 9.11. So Amos, centuries later, one of the minor prophets, says the tabernacle of David is going to be restored. Okay? And the apostle James at the Jerusalem council declares that this, this prophecy of Amos was fulfilled in the fact of the Gentiles streaming to Christ in Acts 15, 16. So when James announces that we, should, we shouldn't be upset at all these Gentiles coming to Christ, why? Because Amos prophesied this, the tabernacle of David is going to be restored. So the worship, worship in the tabernacle of David continues down to the present. You're participating in it right now. The Gentiles streaming to Christ, Gentiles all over the world are singing praises to God, and they are doing so in the tabernacle of David. So the songs we offered up this morning are all offered up in the tabernacle of David. This psalm is all about that. So when this psalm is inviting the goyim, inviting the Gentiles, come, sing, uh, join in. The, the heavens are singing, the oceans are singing, the meadows are singing, the forests are singing. You Gentiles ought to join in. This is a psalm of invitation. It was used in the dedication of the tabernacle of David, and this indicates that David knew what it meant. David had an understanding that this was to be a welcoming uh, place for the Gentiles to come and offer to God a sacrifice of praise. So let's consider some of the things that the, the psalm itself uh, declares. Our God made the heavens. Our God is the creator God. Our God is our maker. As we just confessed in the creed, uh, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So we've already considered this in other psalms, but the Lord is our maker. He is the one who has made us, and not we ourselves, as it says, as it will say later in Psalm 100. Any personal beings, 
or impersonal forces that seek to occupy the position that should only be occupied by the one who made us are idols. And the word for idols here is literally nothings or nullities. So, and is one of Isaiah's preferred pronouns for any discussion of idols. You can see that in Isaiah, Isaiah 12, 24. Don't worship nothings. Don't worship vapors. Don't worship nullities. The gods of the, gods of the nations are nothings. The, don't, they didn't make you. They didn't make you. They couldn't make you. They are nothing. Paul echoes this when he says in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, that an idol is nothing. An idol is nothing. All the gods arrayed against us are nothings. This would include, incidentally, the deaf, dumb, and blind process called natural selection. Either God made us or nothing did. Either God made us or nothing did. And if nothing did, then why are we here? All right, how, could nothing, how could nothing produce something? We must affirm, as believers, as Christians, we must affirm that the Creator made absolutely everything and that He used that most abundant raw material of all, which would be nothing. God created us out of nothing, from nothing. And there was a lot of it to create us out of. Nothing did not make us. Nothing is what we are made of. Nothing did not bring us into being. Nothing is what, we're, what we were summoned from, what we were called out of. We affirm creatio ex nihilo, creation from nothing. So the doctrine of creation is profoundly foundational. Everything depends on it. It is by no means a secondary thing. Darwin was profoundly mistaken, and the only people who might be more mistaken than he was would be those Christians who think that there might be some kind of accommodation possible between Darwin and Genesis. And by Genesis, I mean Genesis as handled by sober exegesis and no funny business. So our God is the creator. Our God made the heavens. Our God spoke, and it was. So when, before all worlds, before the foundation of the world, God was self-existent. God did not create the world because he needed companionship. God was not lonely. God is love. God loves the Son. God the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And that love between them is the Holy Spirit. God was not lonesome. God did not need us. What he did when he created us was out of an abundant overflow of grace. It was not something that he was dependent upon. It's something we are dependent upon. So our God made the heavens. Our God created everything. His creative authority is absolute. Next, our God is beauty itself. Our God is beauty itself. God is infinitely sublime. God is infinitely sublime. Not only is he the ultimate embodiment of beauty itself, we must also recognize that knowledge of this lines up entirely with the need to fear before him. The aesthetic aspect of our worship does not reduce God to manageable proportions. We fear him and we worship him in the beauty of holiness. God is beauty itself, not cuteness itself. God is beauty itself, not cuteness. He is not a domesticated God. He is the kind of beauty that makes any sensible man to tremble. 
You can tremble. I mentioned earlier that, that perfect love casts out fear. There is a craven fear. There's the kind of fear that causes uh, unbelievers to ask, to cry out for the, the mountains to fall upon them. There's that kind of fear. There's the, the fear that acts like a dog that's been beat too much. There's that kind of fear. But there is another kind of fear that is that overtakes people who are standing upright before God because, because Jesus is perfect and because the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to them and they know that and they stand before God because they are invited to stand before God. We're told in Hebrews that we're to approach the throne of grace with boldness. We need grace. We need forgiveness. We need God's mercy. We need his kindness. And so how does he want us to ask for it? With boldness. We are to come before him with boldness. At the same time, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it says in Philippians. There's a trembling that is awestruck. There's a trembling that is overcome by the majesty of God, how God is great and worthy of praise. God is the sublime God. God is beyond all mortal reckoning. He is. Don't ever settle for a God that can be located in the mezzanine, just a little bit above you. Don't pray for a God who is a regional God or a God who is a local deity. God made the heavens, and he is infinitely beautiful. And obviously, it follows from this that our God is worthy of glory. Our God is worthy of glory. We are to declare the glory of God, and we are to declare it before the goyim, before the nations, before the heathen. Verse 3, this is what Israel was invited to do, and we are, the, we are those Gentiles. We have been summoned in. We're 2,000 years into this process. But once we've been invited in as the new Israel, we turn and give the invitation to all unbelievers outside. The fact that the heathen don't recognize this yet is not a reason for silence, but rather it is a motive for declaration. When they say, no, that's not the way it is, we don't accept your book, we don't accept your Bible, we don't accept your Jesus, we don't, we don't have any reasons for believing that, we oftentimes take that as a signal to shut up. Well, they don't believe our book, they don't believe our Lord, they don't believe, our, they, they don't believe in the tenets of our faith community, they don't buy it. Well, that's why we should declare it. We are to declare it because they don't buy it. We are to declare it because they have not heard. If we, if we shrink back because they don't believe it, the problem is not that they don't believe it. The problem is that we don't believe it. If we believed it, we would declare. If we believed it, we would announce. If we believed it, we would go tell them. They don't know. Somebody should tell them. How will they hear without a preacher? Right? You, everybody, we have to commission church planters. We have to commission missionaries. We have to commission ministers to go out and tell the world. So the fact that they don't know, the fact that they don't accept, is not a motive for silence, not a reason for silence, but rather is a motive for declaration. All the tribes of men, all the tribes of men, are to be invited to join in with the giving of this glory. All of us must summon, we must gather together in order to give God glory. Now somebody might say, doesn't he have enough glory? Doesn't, is he short? Is he, running, is he running a deficit of glory that we need to supply uh, more glory? No. We, he's, he's not short of glory. We don't give him glory because he's short. We give him glory because we're short of understanding how much, how much glory he's worthy of. We give him glory not so that he would know that he's glorious. We give him glory so that we would know 
that he is glorious. So all the tribes of men are invited to join in with this giving of glory. Verse 7, give glory and strength to the Lord. He is worthy of great glory, and so we are to give him the glory that is due to his name. Verse 8, we are to give the glory that is due to his name. When those who do not know God are silent about his glory, this is not to be taken by us as a signal to be silent as well. When the heathen who do not know him fail to give him glory, this is a void that we must occupy. This is a space that we must step into. When the heathen fail to glorify God, we should step right into that place. Herod was uh, given, uh, the, the people said, oh, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And it says that Herod failed to give glory to God, so he's eaten by worms and died. Believers should step into that moment. You're not giving glory to God. You need to give glory to God. Notice also that when our offering box is brought forward later on in this service and placed on this table, this is a scripturally assigned means of giving God glory. We give God glory when we say glory to God. We give God glory when we preach about his glory. We give God glory when we say amen to the preaching of God's glory. We give God glory when we sing robustly to him. We give God glory when we do that. And, verse 8, we give God glory when we write a check and put it in the offering box and it's brought forward and it's given to God. That's how you glorify God. Tightwad saints do not give him glory. We're not to be stingy with our praise. We're not, not to be stingy with our music. We're not to be stingy with our our resources, our money. We're not to be stingy with our presence in the sanctuary of God. We are to give him glory. Why? Because he is worthy. He, we give him glory because we need to recognize that creatures like us need to, to be aware of how much glory we should be giving him. If, if we do anything else, if we, do, if we turn away from that, it's not that God is, going to say, God is going to say, oh no, now I'm running short of glory because Smith or Murphy, are not, they're not giving me glory and, and what am I going to do without my glory? We're not, we're not giving him glory because he's running low. We give him glory because we, we are running low on sanity. When we don't give him glory, we start to lose our minds. When we don't give him glory, we start to think foolish things. Remember, the alternative is worshiping God or worshiping nullities, worshiping God or worshiping the idols, the nothings, right? And what happens when you worship nothings? Paul tells us in Romans 1 that their foolish hearts were darkened. Right? They, descend into an ab they descend into an abyss of insanity. Nebuchadnezzar knew better than, than we do. When, when Nebuchadnezzar said, oh, look at this is great Babylon that I built, and he was struck mad, he lost his mind, and he, he uh, behaved like, like a cow for seven years. What happened when he, wh what was it that caused him to lose his mind? Well, it was his rejection of God's place in the heavens. And when his, when his sanity was restored to him, what did, what did Nebuchadnezzar know? He knew that God is in heaven and he does as he pleases. God is the one to whom we must give glory. The king of Babylon needs to give glory to God. The president of the United States needs to give glory to God. The Supreme Court of the United States needs to give glory to God. All the pastors in this nation need to give glory to God. All the kings of the earth, all the rulers, all the parliaments need to give glory to God, not because he needs it, but because they need it. Because if they don't do it, 
They're going to chase after, va- chase after vapors. They're going to chase after folly. They're going to start, they're going to start telling themselves crazy, uh, cockamamie things. They're going, they're going to trust in nothings. They're going to trust in the most outrageous stories. Well, we're here because this deaf, dumb, and blind process created us. It is that we that is made, we that have made us, and not him. He did. He didn't do it. We did it all by ourselves. Our God reigns. We have a we have a tendency to think that power is merely impressive, but we've already learned that God is the maker of all things. The created order that He made is not just immense. It is not just immense. It is also glorious. And it's glorious because it's reflecting, the heavens declare what? The glory of God. The heavens announce what he is like. It's also glorious. We have learned that he is beauty itself. We are to worship him in the beauty of holiness. We're to be arrayed in holiness so that we can worship him appropriately. We are to render glory to him. So this God, this God, this creative, beautiful, and glorious God This God is the one who reigns. The beautiful God is the one who rules. The glorious God is the one who determines every last thing. Not one atom wobbles from its place. Not one crab nebula wanders from its assigned role. Every crab nebula, every one of them is in place. They're not one centimeter off, none of them. All of them are right where they're supposed to be. The entire created order is obedient. The rocks that are on the dark side of the moon are sitting right where they were put, right where they need to be. Not one hair takes up residence in your hairbrush apart from his commanding it. He's the one who commanded every one of those hairs to be right where they are. Not one sparrow is taken down by a stray cat unless the father of all determined that it should be so. But this is not raw power. This is not simply an energy or a force that's working in and through all things. When Jesus says not one hair comes from your head or not one sparrow, he's talking about his follow-up, his application of this is that you are worth more than many sparrows. You are worth more than many sparrows. And your father, who oversees all these intricate little tiny things, sees you. He loves you. He is your father through Jesus Christ. It's not raw power. It's not simply an impressive display. It's like uh, seeing 10 thunderstorms stacked on one another. You know, anybody who's spent any time in the Midwest knows that they know how to do thunderstorms then. There. Take 10 of those things and stack them on top of each other. It's the sort of, you look at this a bank of thunderheads coming in and you think we're all going to die. We're all going to die. It's that kind of thing. And then a voice comes from out of the thunderstorms that says, I've come to repair your sewing machine. And you say, do you do that kind of finesse? Can you? I mean, what? What? Thunder, uh, you think that, well, thunderstorms are, are impressive and they're big, right? And they can just go boom and that's all they can do. But our God is like that He's impressive, overwhelming, infinitely impressive. Holiness like a bank of thunderstorms. And yet, uh, I 
a month or two ago, I mentioned, I think in a sermon, that I'd seen a magnified photograph of a beetle's foot. And it was this amazing, psychedelic, intricate thing. It was a beetle's foot. And I don't know why I run across these things, but just, just the other day, I ran across a photograph of a mosquito's foot. A mosquito's foot, magnified 800 times. A mosquito's foot. And it was the most amazing feat of engineering that you could imagine. And who, di who did this? Who, who went down to this tiny little level and, and carved out this exquisite little teeny tiny thing? It was that bank of thunderstorms, only way bigger than that. Right? God is transcendent. God is imminent. God is big. God is everything that God is, is contained within his infinitude, right, as though infinitude could contain anything. Everything God is is transcendent, but all of God is everywhere. All of God is everywhere. So the omnipresence of God is not a doctrine that says that God is rolled out over the created order like pi dough, and so that you, the, the farther you roll it out, the thinner it gets. God is not thinly spread over the created order. All of God is everywhere. All of God is everywhere. Omnipresence means that everything he is is invested everywhere. He's present everywhere, all of him. He's not parceled out. He's not divvied up. Our God is invested in what a mosquito's foot looks like. He's clear. You look at that and you say, this is astonishing. What does God care about? Well, what doesn't he care about? God God is invested in everything, everywhere. It's not raw power. It, there's exquisite engineering from the top to the bottom. It is perfect from the top to the bottom. It is not simply the raw power of an indiscriminate avalanche. It's not that kind of power. So this is no despot who reigns, but rather our heavenly Father. This is the one whose Son took on human flesh in order to die for all the sins of all his people. So this is the one who became, what well, you know, it's, it's you trying to imagine becoming a midge in a sunbeam, little, you know, little, uh, and, then, and then being betrayed by all the other midges and then cru crucified as a criminal midge. And it, it, Jesus did this. Jesus, the eternal word of God, came down, became one of us in order to die for the sins of all his people. Do you think that the problem of evil is a problem? Do you think the problem of natural evil or the problem of moral evil is a problem? God created this world and everything in it, and he determined that it would go in just the way it is going so that he, did, he made this determination so that all the evil in all the world might be shaped into, might be fashioned into the shape of a Roman spear and rammed into his side. That's where the problem of evil went. That's how you deal with the problem of evil. God became man, and he took on human flesh so that he could die, so that he could die for his people, so that he could secure your salvation, so that you could be forgiven for your lies and your pettiness, so that you could be forgiven for your lust and your cowardice, so that you could be forgiven for that adultery, for that snarky attitude, for you, so that you could be put right Put right with him, put right with your spouse, put right with your family, put right with your neighbor. He did all that, so, and he took all the, all the sin, and he took it upon himself. So all the, all the evil that tr is a trouble to us 
was applied to Jesus, and you might take the Roman spear as the metaphor. That's, that's where the problem of evil goes. That's how we answer it. That is the only answer. That's the ultimate answer. God undid our sin. He undid our evil by the death of Christ on the cross. So Christ is our God. Christ is our maker. God the Father made the world through the executive of the Son. Christ is our maker. Christ is our beauty. Christ is our glory. Christ is our king. He is the one who reigns. And his crown is made of thorns. How that crown, made out of thorns, will be transfigured in the life to come is something that we do not yet have the capacity to imagine. We can only wait for it, which we eagerly do. How can God do all these things? How can God be all these things? How can God be these things for us? That is, that's, that, that is Christ. That's who Christ is. Christ is God for us. Christ on the cross is God for us. Christ in the grave is God for us. Christ risen is God for us. He, Jesus didn't die for anybody wholesale. It was all name by name, face by face. If Jesus died for you, then he died for you, first, middle, and last name. He died for you. He died to secure your salvation. And he wanted to gather a people for his own name, to glorify his name, from all the nations of men. And he started giving intimations of this very early on. When God first established the people of Israel through Abraham, what was Abraham told? Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And when David built this tabernacle on Mount Zion, he was the king, he was the king of Israel, he knew the Gentiles were included. David was looking forward to the time when you would be here singing praises to the God that David adored. Our God and Father, we thank you for the gospel of free grace, and we pray that your spirit would continue to shape and mold us in accordance with all the terms of it. Amen. Meals together are to be a time of harmony. We are all of us companions here. The Latin word for companion comes from two words, meaning one who shares bread together with you. As companions, we should want to be companions on more than just one level. We are growing together, being knit together as we partake, and so we should really want to go together. Now, you have heard us emphasize before that we do not want you suspending yourself from the supper. We do not want you feeling like you've had a bad week and so you're going to send yourself to your room without supper so that mom and dad don't have to do it. You are not mom and dad, and you don't get to make that decision. You need the strength. You need the encouragement. You need to partake. If you did badly last week, then why are you trying to help ensure that you will do poorly next week? This supper is not a reward for being good. It is nourishment for sinners in various states of recuperation. You've also heard that the verse about leaving your gift on the altar and going to be reconciled to your brother applies to tithing and not to eating. It is the gift on the altar, not food from the altar. But somehow, churches are better at encouraging the kids to stay out of the fridge and pantry than they are at discouraging the kids from contributing money to the household budget. But having said all this, it is important that you take this nourishment for the task assigned, which is to strive for like-mindedness. Do you need to refrain from this meal because someone else in the body is partaking and you and he are not speaking? 
No, it is not at all. But if this, state affairs, if this state of affairs is a standing one, then you need to be partaking so that you have the strength to go speak to them and put things right. And if every time you've tried that, it only makes things worse, then you need to partake so that you will have the strength to involve others who will be part of the solution. Maybe the other person is difficult, maybe just you are, or maybe both of you are. In any case, you need the Lord's grace and help, and this table is one of the places he supplies it. So come in faith, come with gratitude, so come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this, it's, it's not to remember the gospel, which I'm, of course you're, you are to do, that Christ died, he was buried, he rose again from the dead. That is the gospel where you are to remember, but there's a more fundamental charge, and that is there's a backdrop to the gospel, a foundation to the gospel. It, it's the foundation, uh, it's the context within, uh, within which the gospel makes the kind of biblical sense that it makes and can only make that kind of sense there. And that, that backdrop, that context is the Lord is God and we are not. The Lord is God and we are not. He is the beautiful one. He is the infinite one. He is the holy one. He is our father and we are his children. And that is the context where Christ dying, being buried, rising from the dead for you to secure your salvation makes glorious sense. So remember who God is. Remember who you are. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen.